You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, Sean, Lee, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, Hangman Strain, Sir Rancid Cheese, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Richard, Hartman, Skipper, the Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Carcos, Rotary Coast, M.D., Lost Again, The Navigator, Vasios, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Under the reign of William III, King of England and Prince of Orange, the interests of both England and the Netherlands were almost always one and the same. At least for the big picture stuff, you know. If something impacted the balance of power in Europe, England and the Netherlands were both impacted and usually in the same way. If something were to impact, say, trade, England and the Netherlands felt the same effect. They were about as close as allies could be during the reign of William III. They shared important trade routes, their colonies and trade goods often complemented each other more than competing with one another, and they shared a leader in the person of William. Thanks to that unusually close relationship, historians often refer to the two nations collectively as the Maritime Powers, capital M, capital P. You'll even sometimes see this used by contemporary writers. Now, the Netherlands really had two capital cities at that point. Amsterdam was the official capital, the seat of the stadtholder William of Orange Nassau. When William III sailed for his homeland, he went to his court at Amsterdam. But to the south, a bit closer to the Spanish Netherlands, there was The Hague. And I'm not sure how aware everyone is of this. At least, for me, growing up, I didn't really know that The Hague was a city. You know, you'll be watching a movie and the international jewel thief is going to be sent off to The Hague 
where the International Criminal Court is located, so it sounds kind of like an institution. But that's the name of the city, The Hague. In the original German, it was Der Haag, or The Hedge, and it kind of means the garden or the woods. When it was founded, it was a private hunting preserve for the local nobility, sort of like Versailles before Louis XIV got his hands on it. But by 1700, it was a bustling city. It was home to the actual government of the Dutch Republic. The States General of the Dutch Republic met at The Hague, and still today it's kind of the de facto capital of the Netherlands. So you can imagine there was quite a bit of panic when, in early February 1701, a number of French armies marched through the Spanish Netherlands, unopposed, and occupied all of the forts guarding the border. This is episode 302, The Little Gentleman in the Black Velvet Waistcoat. The Spanish Netherlands were under the command of Maximilian Emmanuel Wittelsbach, Duke of Bavaria. That's the father of Joseph Ferdinand Wittelsbach, who very nearly sat the throne of Spain, who would have been the king of Spain had he not died of smallpox. Well, Ever since the death of his son, Joseph Ferdinand, and the loss of that royal title in his family, Maximilian Emanuel Wittelsbach had been making some political moves. He was none too happy with the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, Leopold I. Leopold seemed to be doing a very good job ruining Germany and plunging her back into war. Most especially, though, Maximilian Emanuel Wittelsbach was upset that Leopold was allowing King William of England and the Netherlands to walk just all over him. Maximilian believed that the empire was strong, but she could be stronger. To do so, though, she needed strong leadership, someone to stand up to King William, someone to guide Germany into a new golden age. Someone like, well, him. To that end, he betrayed Emperor Leopold I and made a separate pact with the King of France, Louis XIV. The plan was pretty simple. He would overthrow the Habsburg monarch in Vienna, who was way too close with all of those filthy Protestants up in the Maritime States, and he would take the crown of the empire. Then it would be himself, the new Holy Roman Emperor, there would be the new Spanish king, Philip V, and finally, Louis XIV of France, who would form kind of a triumvirate of powers, good Catholic powers all, who would finally be able to do something about that festering heretical boil to the north. Maybe they could, oh, I don't know, install James II back on the throne of England, who would then institute a new Catholic regime in Europe, would finally be saved. So Maximilian Wittelsbach signed a secret accord with King Louis of France that read, quote, He shall permit the troops of France upon a certain day to enter into all the strong places of the Low Countries. End quote. By strong places, they mean the fortress cities that dotted Flanders and the border with the Netherlands. In a single day, King Louis XIV sent troops into about a dozen different key locations that, in his past, France had fought over for years, and now they all belonged to France. Of course, those fortresses were all occupied almost exclusively by Spanish troops, as it was still technically the Spanish Netherlands. But 
Now that Spain and France were best buds, the Spanish just stepped aside and let the French take them over. This gave King Louis a front line with the Netherlands, which was a dangerous situation for everybody. Sparks could fly along heavily defended fronts like that. Meanwhile, though, the maritime powers were busy in the Great Northern War. Now, that's not the focus of our episode, but it's important to remember here that the maritime powers and Sweden were allied at this point. However, Princess Anne of England's husband was Prince George of Denmark, which means that there were a lot of ties between Denmark and England at this point. A war between Sweden and Denmark was bad for England and for the Netherlands. So, the maritime powers pushed for peace between Denmark and Sweden, and eventually they got it, even if they did kind of have to hold a gun to Denmark's head to do it. They convinced Charles XII of Sweden to abandon his invasion of Denmark, and consequently his alliance with Louis XIV, but they offered him naval support for his war against Russia. It would make the Baltic a dangerous place to sail for a while, but while Sweden was occupied with Russia, that would free up the maritime powers to look back to the south. So it was time for a little bit of guerrilla diplomacy. England convinced Denmark to send them material aid in the war against France, you know, food, money, ships, supplies, that kind of thing, which was a huge boon for England. But William wanted Germany as well. What he could get of Germany, anyway. Bavaria was already lost, of course. However, when Maximilian Emmanuel switched sides to the Catholic Louis XIV, that convinced all of these other Protestant German states to get on board on the side of the maritime powers. William convinced a ton of smaller dukedoms and principalities and city-states to join his little alliance, but the two big wins in this guerrilla diplomacy were Hanover and Prussia. Both were powerful, militarily and economically. Both would send troops to aid in the fight against Louis XIV, which was huge. But for their agreement to fight with the maritime powers, both Hanover and Prussia wanted something. Prussia's demands were pretty easy. It was at this point that the dukedom of Prussia disappeared, and the kingdom of Prussia emerged. It was the same state, the title just got bumped up a notch. Now, of course, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, of which Prussia was a part, wasn't thrilled about any of this. But he acceded to the demands. He sure didn't need another powerful German state to jump ship from the empire. However, Leopold did have one clause, one addendum. The Prussian leader could be called a king, but he could only be known as the king in Prussia, as opposed to the king of Prussia. There were only three kings of anything in the Holy Roman Empire, and all three of those titles were stepping stones to becoming the emperor. Allowing another king of something would allow there to be a bit of rivalry for the imperial seat. So, it was the king in Prussia. On the other hand, Hanover had, well, really just the one request, just one thing they needed, but it was going to be big. See, 
Back in England, just about a year earlier, the Duke of Gloucester died. The Duke of Gloucester was Princess Anne's only child, and second in line for the throne, and it was pretty clear that he was the future of England. King William clearly wasn't going to have any more kids, and even Princess Anne herself, well, she was 36 years old, certainly not too old to have children, but she'd had troublesome pregnancies in the past, and her children had a bad habit of dying, so really it was the Duke of Gloucester. He would be the King of England and hopefully establish a new and strong dynastic tradition. But then, as an adolescent, he caught smallpox and died. Which means that there was a very, very good chance that Anne would take the throne and then die without producing another clear heir. So what's the possibility, under those circumstances, that a steward from the Catholic side of the family might just reclaim the throne. And there was a rule against that passed by the Parliament of England, but with Louis XIV swinging his weight all around Europe, he might just be able to pull off putting one of those Catholics on the throne of England. Hanover wanted to make sure that that did not happen. The Duchy of Hanover was ruled by the Duchess Sophia, but she was pretty old by this point, and it was really her son George that took the reins in all of these negotiations. He required, for his aid in the war against France, that England reaffirm the 1689 Bill of Rights which barred Catholics from the throne of England. Now, it seems to me that at this point, the most likely candidate for a successor to the Protestant throne of England would be from Denmark. After all, the future Queen Anne's husband was Danish. Of course, as we just mentioned, England was closely allied to Sweden, and putting a Dane on the throne of Sweden would be quite provocative. It would upset Charles XII, and no one in England wanted to upset Charles XII. Still, Hanover demanded that England ensure that a Protestant would succeed to the throne. King William and the English Parliament agreed to these terms, but the Parliament went one step further, in part to secure their Protestant monarchy and in part to secure the loyalty and the troops from Hanover, the Parliament passed the Act of Settlement in 1701. The Act excluded from the possibility of ever wearing the crown of England, quote, all and every person or persons who is, are, or shall be reconciled to, or shall hold communion with the see or church of Rome, or shall profess the popish religion, or shall marry a papist. End quote. Pretty strong words to ensure that a Catholic would never, ever sit the throne of England, and as far as I'm aware, still technically the law in England although it would be interesting to see if it would still hold up if a legitimate heir to the English throne happened to be a Catholic. That 1701 Act of Settlement, though, went a step further. It named the Duchess Sophia of Hanover and her descendants as heirs to the throne of England, should Queen Anne, the future Queen Anne, should she die without a proper heir. Do you remember back when, during the Nine Years' War, when Savoy switched sides and Leopold I was put in a militarily unworkable position, when he had to sign a peace with France because of the actions of one duchy in his empire, 
a move which very nearly doomed the war effort for the Allied states. Well, William III definitely remembered that. It almost cost him the war. He was nervous that, should another duchy, like Bavaria, decide to turn tail, Leopold might just leave the alliance. But now, he had two kings, the new king in Prussia, and the probable future king of England, firmly tied to his cause, two men who had troops and money to help him win this war, and all of them were aimed squarely at King Louis of France. He could be assured that, even if Leopold lost his nerve, Hanover and Prussia would continue the fight. Which brings us to September, 1701, the most consequential month in the lead-up to war. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Near the 1st of September, King Louis traveled to Saint-Germain. That's where his old friend, King James II of England, was dying. He'd been sick for some time, but his sick bed was pretty clearly becoming a deathbed. When Louis arrived, he walked into James' chambers. James' son was sitting by his bedside, and the room was bustling with attendants. As soon as the King of France walked in, though, the attendants began to depart. But Louis said, quote, let nobody withdraw. He walked over to the king's bedside and went on, quote, I am come, sir, to acquaint you 
that whenever it shall please God to call your majesty out of this world, I will take your family under my protection, and I will treat your son, the Prince of Wales, in the same manner that I have treated you, and will acknowledge him as he then will be King of England. End quote. And that's a big moment. It's an emotional moment for everybody in the room. More than anything, though, it was a deeply spiritually moving moment. The servants in the room, both French and English, began to weep and send their thanks to God for the most Christian king, Louis. They pledged their loyalty to James Francis Edward Stuart, the last hope of England. King James himself began to tear up. Then his son did the same, and finally King Louis joined them in their tears, pledging to see England saved from the heathens. About two weeks later, James II died. True to his word, Louis proclaimed his son the rightful king of England and announced his intention to see England saved and their good king, James Francis Edward Stuart, recover his throne. And this really wasn't a terrible plan. I mean, look, King Louis actually was a devout Catholic. He believed all of the stuff he said about God and the divine right of kings. It wasn't just some political ploy. But don't ever think that he didn't have one finger on the realpolitik side of things. He knew full well that there was a large element in England that did not want a Hanover on the throne. It was a large percentage that wanted their rightful Stuart dynasty on the throne, whether they were Catholic or not. And if France were to present James Francis Edward Stuart, he might have a large fifth column within England ready to wage war. They might be able to keep England out of the upcoming struggle. You know, a civil war keeps you from fighting France. And who knows, they might even win that civil war and bring England in on the side of France. And if not, well, they'd cause some trouble anyway. Meanwhile, that very same week, William III arrived in the Netherlands to hold counsel with Emperor Leopold and his generals. When he arrived, William was greeted by one of his own generals, John Churchill, 1st Earl of Marlborough. And if I've ever called him Duke... Well, that's wrong. He isn't one. Not yet. He's still an earl. But there was some tension between William and Marlborough. The two men weren't really friends. Remember that Sarah Churchill, John's wife, was very close friends with Princess Anne. John was close friends with her Danish husband, George. The Churchills had chosen to oppose William and Mary several times, very publicly, in favor of policies that were favored by Princess Anne. Back during the Nine Years' War, Marlborough had been accused of high treason against the king. There was a pretty disastrous military loss, and Marlborough was kind of set up as the patsy. He didn't have anything to do with it, and it's pretty clear he never actually committed any treason. But after those accusations, he decided to depart the court anyway, make himself scarce. But after Queen Mary died in 1694, the royals tightened ranks. Princess Anne was brought in to do all of the Queen's stuff that it had been Mary's job to oversee, and Princess Anne brought her friends John and Sarah back to court with her. The king wasn't super pleased, but he wasn't going to make a fuss. 
so there was some tension between these two men, but everybody here knew that Marlborough was the best field commander they had, so those tensions were set aside. Back in England, Parliament was still skeptical of a new war. Mainly, they were worried about how expensive it would be. But it's not like they had their heads in the sand. They were watching King Louis very closely, and he was up to some shenanigans. Some of these shenanigans were small. For example, he admitted his grandson, the Petit Dauphin Louis, still only twenty years old, onto his high council. Le Petit Dauphin was trained to be a military commander. He was trained to lead men into battle. He hadn't actually done it yet, only being twenty, but it's a pretty clear sign that Louis was preparing for war. Bigger and much more shocking, though, Louis registered his other grandson, Philip V, King of Spain, as third in the line of succession to the throne of France, which is super against the rules. That would mean, if he should wind up on the throne of France, that Spain and France would be united. Well, not united exactly, you know, Scotland and England were still technically separate kingdoms, but it was a provocative move nonetheless. There were a ton of these. Most of them were tiny, just troop movements that you should keep your eye on. And of course, he was occupying those forts in the Low Countries. But all of those tiny little slights painted a single big picture. War was coming, and Parliament decided to act. They authorized King William to sign a treaty with the Holy Roman Empire and the Netherlands. The agreement that they signed was actually just a reaffirmation of the Grand Alliance from the Nine Years' War. And you'll still sometimes see that war called the War of the Grand Alliance, but that's kind of confusing because this war that's clearly coming is another War of the Grand Alliance. There were a few stipulations in the updated treaty, though. Their war aims included wresting those three important territories in Italy, Naples, Milan, and Sicily, away from Spain. They would then become part of the Holy Roman Empire. The Spanish Netherlands would also be removed from the influence of France and Spain and become the Habsburg Netherlands. However, it's important to note here that there were no stipulations in that treaty about the king of Spain. Nothing saying that Philip V, who nearly everybody in the room had agreed was the rightful monarch, there was nothing saying that he should be removed from the throne. Just that all of those European Spanish possessions should be taken from him. And then there was a bunch of stuff about trade, mostly opening up the Spanish Empire to trade from the maritime powers. And most of that might sound kind of boring, and I suppose it is, but we need to remember that that's highly important to our overall narrative. English and Dutch merchants in the Americas were not permitted to trade in any Spanish ports, and they wanted access to some of those Spanish goods. That's why piracy was about to become such a lucrative industry in the West Indies. If you're not allowed to purchase Spanish goods, well... You do what you gotta do. Or you let a bunch of ruffians do it anyway. If things had worked out the way that this treaty wanted them to work out, we might never get the golden age of piracy, because there would be no real market for pirated goods. 
But, you know, spoiler alert, things aren't going to work out that way. As the winter of 1701 approached, everyone put their soldiers into winter quarters, and the diplomats worked overtime. They were still trying to reach a peaceful settlement to the crisis, but Louis's men were honestly trying to undermine the peace. He knew that a war was coming, and he wanted to strike while he still had the advantage, but he didn't want to be seen as striking first. And Louis really did have the advantage here. Savoy and Bavaria were huge wins for France, and the seizure of those forts along the Dutch border left the Netherlands wide open. If he were going to start a war, now was the moment. But then, everything changed. At the beginning of March, 1702, William woke up and decided it was a fine spring day. He wanted to take some time and enjoy this warm weather, and went out for a ride. The horse that he was riding that morning had been confiscated from a Jacobite, a man named Sir John Fenwick, who had conspired against the crown. And she was apparently a lovely horse. The king and his entourage were riding along at a good clip, enjoying the morning air, but then King William's horse stumbled into a mole's burrow. The horse fell and flung the king over her head. When William III landed, there was a great snap. He'd broken his collarbone. A few days later, attempting to recover... William III came down with a bad case of pneumonia, a case from which he would never recover. The king died on the 8th of March, 1702. When the news spread, it was said that Jacobites all across England and the world, in thanks to the service done their cause by that mole who built his burrow, that those Jacobites rose their glasses in a toast to the little gentleman in the black velvet waistcoat. Princess Anne was designated Queen Regnant until she could be officially crowned. In the Parliament it was said, quote, We have lost a great king, but we have got a most gracious queen. End quote. Louis XIV, down in France, was jubilant. For years now, William had been his arch-rival, and now he was gone. He now had options up in England, but first, the Netherlands. Louis sent envoys to The Hague. They offered the Netherlands all kinds of rewards if they would abandon the Grand Alliance and agree to a peace with France. And it looks like, publicly at least, those envoys weren't really getting anywhere. The Netherlands wasn't about to agree to a peace with France, but... Maybe some of those promises made behind closed doors were starting to have an effect. However, before anyone could come to any kind of a decision here, John Churchill, 1st Earl of Marlborough, arrived at The Hague. Queen Anne had sent him to prepare the Allied armies of the Netherlands and England, he'd brought armies with him, to prepare them for war. Now, Louis had been hoping that Queen Anne might not have a stomach for war. After all, she was just a weak and feeble woman. But Churchill made it very clear that the Queen, the Parliament, and the Grand Alliance were prepared for war with Louis. Now, 
War wouldn't actually be declared by the Parliament or anyone in the Alliance until May. But there was open battle before any of that. Armies in the region were busy positioning and maneuvering and building supply routes. And naturally, occasionally, they met. And when they met on the field, they clashed. However, none of these were large-scale battles, mostly cavalry engagements. But by June, real war began. Now, of course, there had been fighting in Italy this whole time, but that was seen as a localized war. Now that fighting was breaking out up in Flanders and the Low Countries, general war had begun. The first action in this region was the recapture of Fort Kaiserwerth, along the Upper Rhine River. That was a force of Allied Dutch and Prussian troops that forced their way through the walls of Fort Kaiserwerth and took control in a couple of weeks of hard fighting. But it was a costly victory. The Prussians, see, still didn't have those light, mobile cannon. They were working with heavy, cumbersome artillery rather than those modern Dutch guns, and they were unable to keep up with the Dutch troops. So a ton of Dutch soldiers got killed before the Prussians arrived with their big lumbering guns and blew down the walls. The second major action in this theater of the war was an assault on the fortress city of Nijmegen. The Anglo-Dutch troops near Nijmegen were commanded by the Earl of Athlone, now, Athlone was an Irish earldom, but the earl was actually a Dutch general, whose name I cannot pronounce, so I'm just going to call him the Earl of Athlone. Athlone had 27 battalions and 62 squadrons under his command, but more importantly, he had a well-entrenched position near Nijmegen. From that entrenched position, he was preparing to attack the fortress city, but he received word that an army of 37 battalions and 59 squadrons under a French commander, the Duc de Boufflers, was coming for him. That's a much larger force. And we should not forget that Nijmegen was still held by French troops. The smaller force under Athlone was sure to be squished between the walls and that larger army. Still, though, Athlone didn't move immediately. His army, as any scouts could clearly see, was staying in its well-entrenched position. It appeared that he intended to fight it out right there. And that's what those scouts would have reported back. But then, at 8 o'clock in the evening on the 10th of June, Athlone suddenly decamped his army and began an overnight march toward the city of Nijmegen. By the time any later scouts would have been able to get back to Boufflers, Athlone was already in the position he wanted a position from which he could fight the French on an open field without being caught between the French and the city walls. Boufflers' army arrived the next morning, but it took about until midday for his artillery to get into position. Now they were ready to fight, but still both armies just sort of stood there, staring at one another, waiting for something to happen. Both commanders were waiting for something to happen inside Nijmegen. The French commander was waiting on the cannon atop the walls to start firing on his enemies. You know, any day now you've got the cannons, why aren't you opening fire? Athlone, though, 
was waiting for... Well, we need to remember that the people of Nijmegen were not fond of their French occupiers. They would be happy to see the French defeated. And the night before, while Athlone's army had just been sitting there, idle for all the world to see, a small group of infiltrators had made their way inside the city walls of Nijmegen. They'd contacted some clandestine allies they had inside. They began a plot to overthrow the French within the walls. They moved quickly, and there really wasn't much open battle. But by the time morning came, they were in command of the city and the walls and the guns. Athlone was waiting for the people inside Nijmegen to open fire on the French. And yet still, the guns lay silent. The problem, which neither commander knew, was that inside the city they had the guns and the shot, but they didn't have access to the powder reserves. They couldn't find the keys. They probably had been hidden away by one of the French commanders, and that commander was either not talking or dead. So the armies just stood there, staring at one another, waiting. And then, finally, boom. Cannon fire erupted from the walls of Nijmegen, and I wonder if, for a second, Boufflers felt relief. Okay, now we can get started. But then, of course, those cannonballs fell among his ranks. And that's when he understood. The Anglo-Dutch forces had taken command of the city, without his knowledge, and led him right into a trap. So, he ordered a retreat. Now, Athlone did try to trap the French forces between his army and the walls, but they just couldn't move fast enough to get into position, so the French got away, but it was still a fairly significant defeat, mostly because Nijmegen was a very important position, and now it belonged to the Grand Alliance. These two battles, happening at very nearly the same time at the beginning of June 1702, were only the beginning of war in the Rhineland. And I know I said last time that we were going to be talking about Marlborough's famous march through the Rhineland. But now, I mean it. Next time, we're going to look at Marlborough's famous march through the Rhineland. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who helps to support this show. Everybody who has left us ratings or reviews. Everybody who has recommended this show. And all of our supporters on Patreon. Without all of you, this wouldn't be possible. So thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like The Sit-Down, a Mafia history podcast, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.